Hello and welcome to the Free Life Community Church Podcast. My name is John DeLille, and I'm the communications guy at Free Life Community Church in Terre Haute, Indiana. Each week, Senior Pastor Dan Willis brings a rich, detailed, and relevant message grounded in Scripture, which is recorded on Sunday mornings and made available for you right here. You can find more messages at freelifecc.com or in the Google Play and iTunes podcast app. Hey, if you've benefited from listening to these messages, we ask that you try to help us out. You can help us out in two different ways. First, you can give us a rating in the app store that you use. Secondly, share this podcast with a family member, a friend, or a colleague. This really does help us to get these messages into the hands of the people who can really benefit from them. This week, you'll hear from FLCC Executive Pastor Chris Robinson. So uh, this week, I, um, I have a friend that works over at the uh, plant, which is a parking lot across from where I work. Um, he just so happens to be a huge comic book guy. And um, knowing that, I asked him, I was like, so Wonder Woman 1984. And we proceeded to talk about how he signed up for HBO Max's free service for seven days just to watch the movie and then hurry up and cancel it. And that led us into another discussion about Netflix and other streaming services and that him and his wife have decided to cancel Netflix and start up a um, subscription with Peacock TV. Anybody familiar with that? It's essentially, it's NBC. NBC's got their own streaming service. And I was like, we talked about it a little bit longer. It made sense because Netflix has dropped a lot of their NBC shows already and whatnot. So, but he asked me, he's like, did you know that NBC is starting to release never footage? never before seen, and uh, on, on YouTube, and found some of that footage, because, you know, it's never before seen. And one of the shows that I liked on NBC for the longest time, and watched the reruns on Netflix, was The Office. So I'm not going to go into great detail about what The Office is. If you haven't watched it, it's funny. If you have watched it and don't like it, okay, I'm sorry, but nonetheless. So in The Office, there are two characters, one of which is named Jim, and the other one are, is Dwight. They're both sales guys. They sit right next to each other, and um, the show has a cold opening. If you know what that is, usually right before the main storyline of the show starts, you have like a little five-minute snippet of some little side thing before the credits run of all the actors' names and whatnot. Uh, Parks and Recreation is another NBC show that does a lot of it. There may be other ones I'm not aware of, but uh, The Office is one that took advantage of this. In fact, uh, they did it so much, it's become like its own compilation. So Jim would pull pranks on Dwight, office pranks, right? I mean, we've all done it. And uh, there was one in particular that they didn't air on NBC, so they decided to keep it back for later. And like I said, I got on YouTube to find it. And what it is, is uh, Jim tries to convince Dwight that the movie The Matrix is real. And in that, if you've ever seen The Matrix, Dwight is sitting in his office and a black cat walks by. Well, no more than like 10 seconds later, another black cat walks by. So if you've ever watched the movie, nerd alert, in the, in the movie, a uh, coincidence or whatever is considered a glitch in the matrix. 
So to up the ante a little bit more, Jim hires these two guys that are twins and has one walk by the office and then another one walk by the office. So now Dwight's starting, you know, his mind is racing. He's like, what am I going to do? And he gets a package with a flip phone in it, and he, he answers it and says, meet me in the warehouse. And uh, so eventually he gets down to the warehouse, and there's this guy that looks like uh, one of the main characters from The Matrix, Morpheus. Coincidentally, his name is Dorpheus, Morpheus's brother. And they have this meeting that's similar to the movie where Dorpheus sits down with him and explains to him, you know, the Matrix is real, there's not peace with, between one world humans and another world machines. And he talks about these two pills. And again, if you're familiar with the movie, you already know where I'm going with this. He says there's the red pill that will open your eyes and show you what the Matrix truly is. Or there's this blue pill where you can take it and remain in life as normal, as you know, as everything stays the same, and you don't, you don't know that the matrix is real. So Jim has done all this stuff to convince Dwight that this is real. And Dwight says, I'll take the blue pill. And Jim, Jim is watching this via camera. He's like, are you kidding me? I hired 20 actors for this. But Dwight goes on to say, you know what? My life is happy right now. I'm about to get married, and I truly care for that person. I have a farm. It's doing okay. I own this building. The business is doing all right, you know. He gave all these things as to why he would choose the blue pill. And so, like I said, Jim freaks out, and Dorpheus goes, if it's not okay to take the blue pill, somebody needs to come down here. And Jim, like, runs down to the warehouse, and it just ends there. But the reason I bring that up is because it made me think about something. What choices are Christians really making? You see, we recognize and are happy that our lives are not what they used to be. But there is no anticipation of continuing on the journey towards seeing what God wants us to be, or even towards spiritual excellence. You see, in one hand, God offers us to take a red pill, a pill of deeper intimacy with him, supernatural ability far above anything the natural can provide for us through the Holy Spirit, and for us to take responsibility not only for ourselves, but sacrificially and spiritually for others. Yet in another hand, not of God, mind you, is the opportunity that presents itself as the blue pill. Life up to this, this point. A pill which looks more enticing, a pill that is more comfortable, and a pill that allows or has the potential, potential to allow old ways, habits, people, things, and our thinking to remain the same but of course in a more sophisticated fashion, because after all, we know better, don't we? So what decision are Christians making nowadays? I guess the better question is, what decision have you been making lately? You see, I, I feel as if a lot of people are taking the blue pill. 
and saying things like, God's timing is terrible. I don't want to lose what I have. I'm happy now. Certainly God wants me to remain that way. I'll stick with church membership, but discipleship, that costs too much. I've received what I needed, so I shouldn't really need God that much more, should I? Or even better, and lastly, I'll do as little as possible, yet still expect God to bless me. Let those sink in for a second. What choices are we making? Dr. Tony Evans has this quote. Because of my spiritual influence, I could not limit myself to the reality I saw. There's a battle. Amen? My hype man's not here, so amen. There's a battle in the spiritual realm that's causing chaos in the physical realm. Amen? Amen. And we, too, have a red pill to choose from. The blood of Jesus. This pill works powerfully in us and gives us the ability to accomplish what can be done only through Jesus, which is a life absolutely and irreconcilably incompatible with the world. I just said a lot there. A lot of tongue twisters, so amen. I, the Spirit got me through that one. A life absolutely and irreconcilably incompatible with the world. A life that glorifies Christ's death on the cross. So that all, not just some, not just many, so that all can become one with Christ. So my intent with this sermon today is to challenge you to focus, focus on becoming a Christian of character and commitment, realizing there is no room for compromise or complacency. To focus on fighting for purpose and meaning in your life, realizing there is no room for an ordinary life. To focus on leading with strength and godliness, realizing there is no more sitting on the sidelines waiting for victories to randomly occur. So, for you Bears fans, I'm going to use a guy by the name of Nick Foles as an example here. Nick Foles, if you do not know him or are not aware of him, or not a Bears fan, which I'm hoping a lot of you aren't, (laughs) in 2017, Nick Foles was exclusively a backup quarterback. He was a second string behind a guy by the name of Carson Wentz. And it makes sense too, right? Because Wentz led the Eagles that year to 11-2 record by week 14. Unfortunately, during that game of week 14 against the Rams, Wentz got hurt. And Foles came in to finish the game and eventually started the rest of the season, leading the Eagles to a 13-3 finish and eventually the playoffs. The Eagles made the Super Bowl that year against your beloved New England Patriots (laughs) for whom up to that point were understandably (coughs) the underdogs. Think about it. 
your, your starting quarterback is out. You've got a backup in there. Maybe he, luck has got him through and got you to the Super Bowl. Now you're going against Tom Brady, at that point, five-time Super Bowl champion, the Patriot Dynasty, which year after year made the AFC Championship. You're going, it's essentially a David versus Goliath, right? Unfortunately, as the story goes, Foles led the Eagles to a Super Bowl 52 victory and became the Super Bowl MVP. Now, I say unfortunately because of my fandom towards the Patriots. Why did the Eagles win the Super Bowl, and why did Nick Foles become the MVP? All because one committed man who knew his purpose came off the sidelines to participate on the field with one focus in mind. I said a lot there, so I'll read it again slowly. All because one committed man who knew his purpose came off the sidelines to participate on the field with one focus in mind. So after I read you that example, it got me thinking, well, is there a biblical character that has a similar, granted, you know, the Jerusalem Giants didn't play the Bethlehem Bengals or whatever back then, but uh, is there a biblical character that has a similar pedigree? One who got off the sidelines of life and had this kind of focus. And one who finally got into the game. So if you have your Bibles today, we will be turning to Philippians 3. If you're familiar with the book of Philippians, it is written by the Apostle Paul, who is our character that we're going to be talking about. Bear with me because I will be reading from the message translation and it may be different from what you are reading in front of you. So, here we go. Philippians 3, verse 1. And that's about it, friends. Be glad in God. I don't mind repeating what I have written in earlier letters and I hope you don't mind hearing it again. Better safe than sorry. So here goes. Steer clear of the barking dogs, those religious busybodies. All bark and no bite. All they're interested in is, is appearances. Knife, happy circumcisers, I call them. The real, emphasis on real, believers are the ones the Spirit of God leads to work away at this ministry. Filling the air with Christ's praise as we do it. We couldn't carry this off by our own efforts, and we know it, even though we can list what many might think are impressive credentials. You know my pedigree, a legitimate birth, circumcised on the eighth day, an Israelite from the elite tribe of Benjamin, a strict and devout adherent to God's law, a fiery defender of the purity of my religion, even to the point of persecuting the church, and a meticulous observer of everything sit down in God's law book. The very credentials these people are waving around as something special, I'm tearing up and throwing in the trash. 
along with everything else I used to take credit for. Why? Because of Christ. Yes, all the things I once thought were so important are gone from my life. Compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ Jesus as my master firsthand, everything I once thought I had going for me is insignificant. He referred to it as manure or dog dung. I've dumped it all in the trash so that I could embrace Christ and be embraced by him. I didn't want some petty, inferior brand of righteousness that comes from keeping a list of rules when I could get the robust kind from trusting Christ, God's righteousness. I gave it all up. I gave all that inferior stuff up so I could know Christ personally, experience his resurrection power, be a partner in his suffering, and go all the way with him to death itself. If there is, was any way to get in on the resurrection from the dead, I wanted to do it. <coughs> do you see the focus, the determination, the lack of distraction in his life? I would love to tell you that that's what my life looks like, but I got some work to do. And I would venture to say that all of us do too. And that's why I think John tells us in 1 John 1, 9 to confess and have confession as part of our daily, daily life. Because no matter, all of us at our best moments put together still are lacking. And I love what John Maxwell has to say about this passage. He says, Paul narrowed his focus that he discarded the nice things of life and counted everything, not just some things, not just a little bit here, a little bit there, counted everything as garbage for the sake of obtaining Christ. He would lose it all if that allowed him to gain intimacy with Christ. In fact, I like how in verses 4 through 6, he kind of gives us a laundry list of what things he gave up. So first of all, he gave up his heritage. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Nowadays, that might not mean much to us unless we're worried about the context here, but it would be like me saying, I was a Hoshan of Hoshans. Or for you people in Mecca, you were a Meccan of Meccans, if that's even a thing. But I mean, think about somebody's pedigree, how many times we associate greatness with somebody's last name. You know, Paul said, I'm giving that up. You know, I, I was, to give you a proof that I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, my parents had me circumcised at eight days old. And by birth, because my parents were pure blood Hebrew, I belonged to the people of Israel. Even more so, I was a Benjamite. You know, Benjamin, who was Jacob's youngest son, born after Joseph was gone. So if you want to know where I came from, I'm all the way, you trace my lineage all the way back to Jacob. Because I had that blood coursing through my veins. But you know what? That don't matter. I gave up my, he gave up his legalism. 
he was a strict Pharisee. Essentially, he was raised in what we would call either the Oxford or Harvard School of Orthodox Judaism. I mean, this, this, he knew everything. He lived a separated and devout life as a Pharisee. And I, I love how the tra Passion Translation puts this. He's, it says, And concerning the righteousness of the Torah, no one surpassed me. As if to say, up to this point, as if to say, no one can contend with my wits. And this is Paul talking, not me. He was essentially saying that, you ever heard of Socrates, Aristotle, Plato? Morons. Man, Paul, you have a dizzying intellect. Hey, I'm just getting started. He said, I gave up my past zeal. I mean, I was so on fire for what the law and the Torah said, I persecuted the church as a result of it. The message said, I'm a fiery defender of the truth. I persecuted the messianic believers with religious zeal. And lastly, he gave up his self-righteousness in regard to the righteousness demanded by legalism. I was blameless. Or I was a meticulous observer of everything in God's law book. So if there were 635 rules up to this point that the Religious leaders had to carry out. He was doing all of them. There was no great uh, curve on the grading scale. He was 100 for 100. You know those 10 commandments? I did all 10. Not just some of them. I looked at all 10 of them, and I excelled at them. Now, this is the Pastor Chris translation. In other words... I believe Paul is saying, because of these things, I thought I was in the game. I thought I was taking the red pill this whole time. But in reality, my accomplishments and what I thought defined me had me taking the blue pill the entire time. So who are some other examples? If you just want a little Bible study of people that eventually got on this red pill diet, if you will. Uh, pastor talked about it last week. Abraham left his homeland, wealth, and friends for a new land because he focused on an unseen kingdom, Genesis 12, 1 through 4. Joseph had strength to endure hardship, essentially Genesis 37 through 50. Moses turned his back on Egypt because he focused on God's plan, Exodus 3. Stephen preached an unpopular message and died a martyr, because of his focus, Acts 7. And one of our all favorites, especially for those of you in women's Bible study, Jesus told Martha, Martha, my beloved Martha, you, why are you upset and troubled, pulled away by all these distractions? Are they really that important? Mary, on the other hand, has discovered the one thing, the one thing most important by choosing to sit at my feet. She is undistracted, and I won't take this privilege from speaking to her. I'm sure a lot of us, even us men, can identify themselves as Marthas. And we need, we need to be more Marys. 
But you get the picture, right? So already I'm to the point in the sermon, what does it take to gain the focus that's required? We can break it down into two words, priorities and concentration. Dave Ramsey, in his talk, Six Drivers of Business, talks about the pursuit of excellence and says a lot of people often know what they should be doing, yet are paralyzed from pulling the trigger. He says a lot of them are ready, aim, 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 and you get the picture. Afraid to pull the trigger. He goes on to say that if you wait on perfection in your pursuit, nothing will occur. What he's saying is in this pursuit of excellence, if you're waiting on perfection, it may never arrive in the sense that you need to take hold of what you have in the blood of Jesus and get going. That's why Paul says in Philippians 3.10, For my determined purpose is that I may know him, that I may progressively become more deeply and intimately acquainted with him, perceiving and recognizing and understanding the wonders of his person more strongly and more clearly, and that I may in that same way come to know the power of outflowing from his resurrection and that I may so share in his sufferings as to be continually transformed in spirit into his likeness even to his death. You see the, the words there progressively, continually? He even goes on to say I, one thing I'd speak about, which I have not quite apprehended, was perfection. And you think about all the things that Apostle Paul had done, and he was still claiming not to be perfect. I'm not perfect, I can assure you of that. I can have a line of people up here telling you all the things that I've done wrong in my life. But you know what? I've been forgiven of those. I've been purified of those things. So I take a step forward. Yes, occasionally there are some steps backwards, You've, you've heard the old adage, two steps forward, one step back, right? Well, make those steps backward progressive. Regarding priority, we've got to fight against what Charles Hummel calls the tyranny of the urgent. He writes, have you ever, have you ever wished for a 30-hour day? Surely, this extra time would relieve the tremendous pressures that we have, right? Think about it. Our lives leave a trail of unfinished tasks, including unanswered emails, unvisited friends and family, unwritten reports, and unread books. But would a 30-hour day really solve our problem? The only difference may be that we'd be working more and enjoying less. You want to add six more hours to each day and see how much you really get done? 
and how much you really don't get done? He goes on to say, when we stop to evaluate, we realize that our dilemma goes deeper than a shortage of time. It is the problem of priority. We live in constant tension between the urgent and the important. In that, recognizing that, uh, Christ in John 8, verses 31-36 says, Jesus turned to the Jews who had claimed to believe in him. He says, if you stick with this, living out what I tell you, you are my disciples for sure. Then you will experience for yourselves the truth, and the truth will set you free. Surprised by what he said, we're descendants of Abraham. We've never been slaves to anyone. How can you say the truth will free us? Jesus said, I tell you most solemnly that anyone who chooses a life of sin is trapped in a dead-end life and is, in fact, a slave. He says, a slave is a transient who can't come and go at his own will. The son, though, has an established position, the run of the house. So if the son sets you free, you are free through and through. I know you're Abraham's descendants, but I also know that you're trying to kill me because my message hasn't yet penetrated your thick skulls. <laughs> yeah, I mean, think about what he just said there. I know you're trying to kill me because my message has not penetrated your thick skulls. How many thick skulls are walking around nowadays that this message is not penetrating it? I'm talking about things I have seen while keeping company with the Father, and you just go on doing what you have heard from your Father. Whew. If you know who the Father is at that last sentence in the context, it ain't a good person. And so Hummel goes on to ask, is there any escape from this pattern? Essentially, the answer lies in the life of the Lord, right? If you stop to think all about all which he had accomplished in three years of ministry, mind you, he worked hard. So hard that, as one story goes, a storm couldn't even wake him up. How many of us sleep through storms? I, I love when it rains outside. It, it helps me to sleep so much better. Maybe to the detriment of my wife, but it helps me sleep pretty good. I mean, think about it. He worked so hard that a storm that was causing established fishermen to go AWOL, he just slept. But guess what? He still had time for people. Still had time for teaching. Still had time for healing. Still had time for forgiving. And still had time for walking beside others. Well, what was his secret? Wouldn't you like to know? Moving on to concentration, which I will touch on that in a second. You know, well, I gotta keep you, keep you on your toes, right? I mean, I could already tell you're on the edge of your seats. <laughs> now, regarding concentration, Paul exemplifies a Christ follower who concentrated on the ultimate every day. 
First of all, he worked on himself. There's an adage that says, you are either your greatest asset or your worst liability. He says in verses, or verse 12, now that I have already attained, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. In other words, this should be a Christian's greatest passion. To take hold of that which God has laid hold of us. If you've ever read Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, or Galatians 4, which Pastor talks about in his uh, Bible study videos, you would know, just like Paul knew, he was chosen. Just like you're chosen. Predestined, accepted, redeemed, informed, an heir, sealed by the Holy Spirit, all of which was according to the good pleasure of God's will. You know, there's eight or nine things there that Paul lists going through Ephesians 1 through 14 that all of us should recognize this is how God sees us. He would later go on into Ephesians 2.10 and say, all these things are true of us because we are his workmanship. We are his masterpiece. We are works of art, if you will. Created in Christ Jesus to for good works, which were pre prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know, it, kindness and doing things like that are, are good works, but what Christ said that when the Holy Spirit came, we would do greater things. Greater things that were pre prepared beforehand for us to do, to get connected with. That's what God wants for us, to do great things. To be more than ordinary. To be more than comfortable. You know, I said in my prayer, I don't know if you caught it or not, you have to ask yourself the question, who is safer, the comfortable or the persecuted? Because when he returns, who's going with him and who's not? I like being comfortable, don't get me wrong, because after I leave here today, it's going to be sweatpants and a hoodie, because that's comfortable. But when it comes to our spirituality, we need to take off the sweatpants and hoodies and go to work. In Galatians 4, he also said that we were heirs. He said it in Ephesians, and he said it in Galatians. Do you know what an heir is? An heir to the throne of God? I mean, you think about being an heir in nowadays terms, and all the financial reward that you get, and all that other stuff, the property, whatever comes with it. That's all ours in heaven. But should that be our greatest focus and greatest reward? Well, God should be our greatest reward and focus. I mean, that's, that's exactly what we're inheriting. So Paul also worked on priorities. He says you have to fight for your purpose. Philippians 3.13 Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. 
man, when you're driving, is it easier to drive to look through the windshield or look at the rearview mirror? Because a lot of us try to drive with looking at the rearview mirror. That is, if your car can go forward, you know, assuming if you're not driving backwards, you have to look in the mirror, but you know what I'm saying. If you're going forward, you're not constantly just looking up here at the rearview mirror because you're going to miss what's in front of you. In Psalm 39.4, David puts it this way. From the name of God's Bible, he says, Teach me, O Yahweh, about the end of my life. Teach me about the number of days I have left so that I may know how temporary my life really is. O Yahweh, I understand my life is temporary. You know, on this vast thing called eternity, I'm just a little dot. The years 1983 through hopefully a little bit further to past 2021, but you know what I'm saying. Just a little dot. Am I going to make enough of an impact on that little dot that resonates on that whole line, or am I just going to be a dot? That's where Chris Robinson was. Didn't really. Okay, moving on. You remember that secret I left it hanging with? By focusing on priority, Mark observed this. Mark 1.35. The next morning, Jesus got up long before daylight, left the house while it was dark, and made his way to a secluded place to give himself to prayer. Think about that, how that's worded. Before the sun came up, he left the house, found a secluded place, and gave himself up to prayer. It wasn't just, you know, oh Lord, uh, little Timmy's got a hangnail on his finger. You know, I, pre I just pray that you would help him through that and uh, that you would just take the pain away. Or Carl's elbow, he, he can't quite pitch in the church softball game. Could you please just heal it because we need him? I don't think that's the kind of prayers that Jesus prayed. Now, he prayed for others, certainly. But... How often do you hear those kind of prayers, not only coming out of your own hearts and minds or lips, but others? I would like to think that he prayed something like David did in Psalm 5, 2 through 3. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God. For to you I will pray. My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you. Not to Facebook, not to ESPN or SportsCenter, not to text messages, emails. I will direct my voice to you. I will direct my heart to you. Because that other stuff... It's temporary, and it don't matter. And lastly, he says, I will direct my heart, my, I will direct it to you, and guess what? I will look up. 
I don't know how many times you've heard me speak in the last month and a half or so, but I keep telling everybody that look up is this thing that just kind of hit me the other day. Boy, wouldn't you know that David thought the same thing in Psalm 5. I will look up. I won't be distracted by all the stuff horizontally. I will look up and know that my God, my King, is in control. Doesn't matter how bad it looks. You see, Jesus didn't have a divinely drawn blueprint. He discerned the Father's will day by day in a life of prayer. P.T. Forsyth gave us this warning about prayerlessness. He says the worst sin is prayerlessness. Why? Because the root of all sin is self-sufficiency. Essentially, independence from God. When we fail to pray to him and wait on him, with our actions, if not our lips, we are saying we do not need him. You know, we may not vocalize we don't need you, but what are our actions saying? Chipping Grimm says this in his blog title, What's Your Agenda? He says, is God gracious and wonderful when he blesses our lives with great, great, great relationships? Good health and well-paying jobs? Yes, of course. But that, that's, that is not his agenda. Those things are God's grace and the blessings of God. When What God is really saying to us can be summarized like this. In this dark and fallen world where there is evil, you are my light and my instruments. Therefore, my number one agenda is to make you like my son. This means I want you to think like my son. I want you to speak like my son. I want you to be generous like my son. And I want you to love lost people like my son. And I want you to confront unrighteousness and injustice like my son did. Whew. Is wealth, relationships, and good health bad? No, not at all. But that's not God's agenda for your life. There's more to life than those things. So prayerful waiting on God is indispensable towards pursuing Christian excellence. You can't they're not mutually exclusive. You can't have one without the other. Paul also worked on his strengths, or worked in his strengths. You can reach your true potential if you do. I, uh, I'm a huge fan of Lego Ninjago. If you're not familiar with it, it's a kid's show. But it's very tolerable, very enjoying if you're an adult like me. Or, you know, not a nerd or anything like that, but... Um, as the seasons progress, the ninjas are in pursuit of their true potential. I wonder, as Christians, are we in pursuit of our true potential? Paul thought so highly of our true potential that he says that we have spiritual gifts. 
For a little Bible study, I would recommend Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians 4. And even Peter wrote about them in 1 Peter 4. I'm not going to go into detail on what they are and what they aren't and what they mean and all that stuff. That's for you to get discernment through the Holy Spirit. But those four passages have several of them, which we all received when we got the Holy Spirit. And so Paul worked from his strength and in his strength because he knew what he was good at. I think all of us get frustrated with Christian service because we don't know what our strengths are or what our spiritual gift is. Once you determine that, then you get a clear focus. And maybe next time I preach, I'll, I'll go through some of these to try to help you. But we have Bible studies and stuff. If you need things like that, an outlet to figure out what your spiritual gift is. I mean, you can take a test, sure, but wouldn't you want more than what maybe some surface level might tell you that you are? That's where the Holy Spirit comes in. Discernment plays a role. Once you figure it out, what your gift is, sure, everybody has secondary gifts, and sure, everybody has some form of a gift in a, in a fashion, but there is one that makes you unique. So working in your strengths, uh, verse 14, chapter 3. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Interestingly, I had the opportunity to help my brother-in-law get a uh, lift into the gym of Friday, maybe? Thursday or Friday, I can't remember. And uh, he had gotten it off of the trailer at a weird angle, and as he left to move the truck away, it kind of came off the concrete. So the wheels were spinning in the gravel, and he called me, and he's like, can you give me a push while I put the machine... We got, it took several times, but nonetheless, we got it. But it made me think of this passage when I was reading it. I had to press with all my strength in order to help and get the thing done. Paul pressed on. He knew it was going to take hard work. If any of you have ever been in the weight room, you do presses. You press weight from your chest, you press weight over your head, you press weight with your legs. It takes work. But he had a narrow focus, so narrowed, I pressed until I reached the upward call in Christ Jesus. Which is also a good transition into the fact that Frank needed my help. And so Paul knew that you had to work with your colleagues or your fellow congregates. Because, he says, you can't be effective alone. Verses 15 through 16. So let all who are fully mature have this same passion. And if anyone is not yet gripped by these desires, God will reveal it to them. And let us at all, let us all, not just Pastor Chris, not just Pastor Dan, not just Pastor Jonathan, not just Pastor Bob, let us all, all-encompassing, you know, if you ask yourself, why, does it, why do small groups exist? Be so that all of us are in the same narrow direction and focus for what this church is about. You know, why does Free Life Community Church exist? We have to ask ourselves that question. Is this what we do, or is what we do outside this building? Because this is just a building. It's nice to come together every Sunday and hear a message from Pastor Dan, maybe sometimes from me, but 
We have a mission. We have a purpose. We must be committed. It takes work. It's not easy. So let all who are fully mature have this same passion. And if anyone is not yet there, which I understand, what Paul is saying is that not every Christian is the same. Not everyone is at that same point. Not everyone has the same Bible study habits, prayer habits. Guess what? God will reveal to you that passion. And so let us advance together. Let's just not let Pastor Dan do everything as way. You, oh, you know, he should have done it this way. Well, where were you? Fair question, right? We got a lot of Monday morning quarterbacks. A lot of us that wouldn't have thrown that pass, or to Zach Pascal, Colts fans, I'm trying to make, rub it in a little bit. Anyway. So you have to work with your colleagues. It's the old adage that a turtle cannot get on a fence post by himself. For those of you who have ever seen a turtle, do you see any turtles climbing any fence posts lately? <laughs> I heard a yes. If you've ever seen a turtle on a fence post, they likely did not get there themselves. We are not going to reach the goal of the fence post, if you will, on our own. That's why we need one another. And that's why in John 13, 34 through 35, Jesus says, So I give you a new commandment. Love each other just as much as I have loved you. I can stop right there. Maybe not in this building, but maybe those outside of this building. If I were to ask you, who do you love the least? Somebody comes right to your mind, right? Now, Jesus is talking about other believers, sir. He's, I mean, he's talking about other people as well. If we can't love one another, as John would say in his first letter, are we really walking in the light? For when you demonstrate the same love I have for you by loving one another, everyone will know that you're my true followers. Everyone. They won't have to ask at work or anywhere else if you're a Christian or not. They'll know. You know, this, this isn't a business, but if you take care of your people, do you have a high turnover rate? Think of it in those terms. Not really. I mean, I want to work for a company that takes care of me, don't you? I want to do things for a church and church body that does things for me. A.W. Tozer writes, Only a dynamically healthy church can ever hope to fulfill the commission of Christ. I'll read that again just because that's a little. Only a dynamic, healthy church can ever hope to fulfill the commission of Christ. Believe it or not, as the worship team comes forward, I have a little audience participation exercise. And don't, I can't get out of the video. Anyway, so 
I, I have an exercise, okay? So I want you to speak audibly, and I'll repeat it for the people in Mecca. Up to this point, or just in your own experience, what do you think it takes to be a Christian pursuing excellence? Don't let everybody speak at once. What sort of things? Just obedience, okay? Commitment. Commitment. There's got to be more than that. Don't, don't be shy. Say a word. Focus. Focus. Commitment. Okay. Obedience. What about reading your Bible? What about prayer? Anything else? Can anybody think of anything? Living it. Yeah, actions. Okay. Faith. Faith. Love. Oh. Love, hope. Compassion. Do you know what all these things, all these things that were mentioned have in common? Because they do. Not just a person who's pursuing excellence. Do you know what they are? They're a choice. They're a choice. You can choose to get up early, pray, read your Bible, journal. You can uh, choose to spend time with somebody outside of your normal routine. I used to be there. I was a person of routine. Still kind of am in a sense. But if that routine got off the, off the tracks, boy, I was not happy. It's a choice. You can choose to change. So again, are we taking the red pill? Or are we choosing the blue pill? One old Chinese proverb says, The journey of a thousand steps begins with the first step. If the first step is not taken, nothing else really matters. Every expert, if there is such a thing nowadays, because that word gets used so loosely, every expert was a beginner at some point. But yet they made a choice to take that first step into what they wanted to become. Proverbs 8.17 says, I will show my love to those who passionately love me. For they will search and search continually until they find me. God is saying, I will show love to those who passionately love me. It's real easy to sit on Sunday mornings and say that you love God, and Monday morning be the Monday morning atheist, as Bob talks about. For you will search and search continually and find me continually. So perhaps, perhaps I've challenged you. And perhaps now you're thinking, well, I understand, Pastor Chris, this is what God has always wanted for me. But you, what you don't understand is it's too hard. That just sounds way too difficult. Guess what? It's because it is. To choose faith and obedience are needed to produce spiritual fruit in our lives. 
and to realize none of it is possible without the Holy Spirit empowering us and the body of Christ supporting us. It takes a focused, like-minded perspective. Thanks for listening to the Free Life Community Church Podcast. For more great biblically sound teaching, visit freelifecc.com.